And this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and the Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Ruben's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip hop. They were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth if he give me a chance? I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. 
so insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenaged boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in, in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like, Led Zeppelin having beats, or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video was at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to BCTV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them, wanting to have a good time, and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, bop, boom, bop, and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel 
from Run DMC. And I remember these guys coming out and doing holding our hit it, and the crowd went crazy. Every, I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like They were open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the BCs came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say, ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies, Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was the baseball the Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip-hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip-hop or doing it too much. So, like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what, you guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work of the Beastie Boys, and we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three Jerks Make a Masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? That's ill, Joan. Well, I'm telling you, I got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer 
Say Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, for Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more Cowbell. With their Commodores-powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. Paul's Boutique really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody had heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is that the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. 
Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend, Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group, the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song Mullet Head on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994, that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-0, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To The Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. 
The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well, they're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. American stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in print and in audio form. Just go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories every week. And now let's return to the impact caused by the courageous stand of this one player against the big league. As soon as they struck down the reserve clause, the Cassandras came out of the woodwork and there were loud lamentations and rending of garments across the land as the baseball owners, who never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, proved themselves wrong again. They said this will mean that all the good players will go to the rich teams and it will be the end of competitive balance. They were 180 degrees wrong competitive balance immediately began to improve. The ensuing 1978-87 decade of baseball saw 10 different teams win the World Series, which had never happened before. And before 1990, not a single team had gone from being the worst in the league one season and being the first in the league the next season. But the Twins and the Braves did it in 91, and the Phillies in 93. So much for competitive balance. Kurt Flood came back briefly after his aborted trade, but his career was essentially over. It's rather nice that he played in St. Louis, not far from the 
courthouse dome. You can see it today right over the outfield fence from the New Bush Stadium where the original Dred Scott case was settled. Dred Scott was the slave who had lived for a while in a free state and said that by virtue of having lived in a free state, he should be declared free. The Supreme Court under Justice Taney in 1857 tried to resolve America's racial dilemma and again made an awful hash of it, brought on the Civil War and catalyzed the career of Abraham Lincoln by saying no African-American has or ever shall have any rights that a white person is obligated to respect. Which is why when I wrote about Kurt Flood years ago, I referred to him as Dred Scott in Spikes. Because they both lost, but both sparked a movement that ultimately won, even if they never benefited from it. The outcome, which was that we are a market society. We believe in the freedom for capitalist acts between consenting adults, to use a phrase coined by the, the late, great Robert Nozick. So the national pastime was suddenly and to its great discomfort, but its ultimate prosperity was made congruent with the national premise, which is that people should be free to contract with one another in cooperative ventures, even if it's called Major League Baseball. The biggest deal in baseball history finally went through today as the San Francisco Giants signed free agent outfielder Barry Bonds to a six-year, $43.75 million deal. Now, Justin Verlander has signed a seven-year contract for $180 million. Leighton Kershaw has agreed to a new seven-year, $215 million contract. What Kurt Flood did was give players leverage. If you have no leverage, you have no power to compel owners to share a larger portion of the value that the players create. No one that I know of has ever bought a ticket to a ballpark to see an owner. Uh, they go to see the, the players. Now, I, I don't want to sound too Marxist here about the labor theory of value, but even allowing for the fact that the entrepreneurship and the scouting and all the rest and the marketing that goes into the management side of baseball does create value, still, most of the value is created by the players. Therefore, what the Dred Scott-Kurt Flood decision did was give the Major League Baseball players leverage just at a time, no one could have seen this, when something else was going to happen that was going to make an enormous difference to salaries, and that is the explosive growth of local broadcast revenues. The era of baseball prosperity was just around the corner with cable television and superstations such as TBS, Ted Turner broadcasting his Braves, the WGN broadcasting the Cubs, which WGN for a while owned through the Tribune Company. So through serendipity, the explosive growth of money pouring into baseball because of new television audiences, baseball became invaluable programming, coincided with the fact that the players suddenly had the leverage to get a bigger piece of this growing pie. A piece that Kurt Flood would never benefit from. Missed the big paydays. Can't blame guys like Duke Snyder and Willie Mays and these others who, had they come along a generation later, would have been rich beyond the dreams of avarice. 
and Kurt's theoretical losses affected him in a very non-theoretical way. Uh, he left the country for a while. I think he was embittered, and I don't blame him. Uh, his, he had an embittering experience, and he moved, I believe, to Spain uh, before coming back and dying prematurely from cancer. Uh, I actually sp- spoke at his, at his funeral among the speakers of me and Jesse Jackson, contrasting rhetorical styles, to say no more. Um, but uh, he could, Kurt Flood could be prickly and uh, good. Uh, Kurt Flood once said, I'm proud that God made my skin black. I wish he'd made it thicker. Uh, baseball in America are better off because he was a little bit thin-skinned. If only... America knew it. Kurt Flood is one among the all-too-forgotten heroes that made America. It's an amazing thing, but understand, well, most people turn to sports and baseball as a pastime. They want the time to pass as a respite from the daily stuff and strife and technicalities of modern life. So they say, get, stop that nonsense don't talk about revenue sharing, don't talk about luxury taxes, don't talk about free agency, don't talk about this, that, the other thing, play ball. I can understand that. But it's too bad because there's a richness to the, if you will, the sociology of baseball that to the fan who's informed of it finds that his enjoyment of the game has deepened. I then proceeded to make the great mistake of voicing the proposition that baseball is like a microcosm of life. Well, I resist that kind of writing about baseball. Baseball reminds me of my father, of summer days of the Federal Reserve Board or whatever. It's just, baseball's baseball. It's a tough, demanding craft played by grown men, and by the way, it's also dangerous. You play 162 of these games in 183 days, you'll get the picture. This is not boys of summer, these are men at work, and they are tough guys at the very top of a very steep athletic pyramid and trying to stay there. So in that sense, to me, it's the ultimate meritocracy. After 162 games, you are your record. There's no dodging it. It's all there in black and white. And uh, this, that's why it requires a particular toughness of the sort that uh, Kurt Flood had in abundance. And great job, Alex. Superb job by George Will. They're not the boys of summer. They're the men of work. And it is work, and it's hard work. And Kurt Flood... Well, he got athletes rewarded for their work, at least in baseball. Kurt Flood's story, a remarkable story, a story of courage and one man, one man alone, changing things. This is Our American Stories.
gas and a wheel with your arm around your sweet boy, your old smoke and down the boulevard you're looking for the heart of Saturday night this is our American stories and now it's time for one of our favorite segments the story of a song and today's comes from an artist whose songs are best known through cover versions by other musicians. His Jersey Girl was performed by Bruce Springsteen. His All 55 was sung by the Eagles. Down There by the Train by Johnny Cash. I Hope That I Don't Fall in Love With You by 10,000 Maniacs. The Long Way Home by Nora Jones. I Don't Want to Grow Up by the Ramones. And Downtown Train by Rod Stewart. And by the way, just from the mix of those artists, you've got to say, wow, what range. Today's song is about one man, one woman, and one tavern. With no further ado, let's take a listen to find out more about this one-of-a-kind American singer-songwriter. Our next guest is one of the most distinctive writers and performers working today. He's kind of a combination poet, jazz singer, and vagrant. He is a mix, mixture of um, Satchmo Armstrong and Humphrey Bogart. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tom Waits. How are you, Tom? Oh, I'm better than nothing. Your songs are about waitresses and bartenders and mums. Why do you celebrate these people in song? For the same reason that a lawyer hangs out in a pool room or how do you find a lot of photographers at a wedding, you know? I uh, find a lot of ideas here, and there's a lot of life going on around here. And, um, you know, so I'm uh, kind of a bit of a private investigator, maybe, you know. You know, my dad spent a lot of time in the bars. My dad drank in the afternoon in really dark bars. So I was drawn to dark places. Everybody needs a different climate in order to create. Mine usually comes in, uh, if I'm talking with somebody in a bar or something, I uh, get a couple of loggers and uh, try to stretch out in conversation. I try to open things up, and then uh, I try to remember it all later, and then I write it down. There's a, a real romance to hanging around these places. It's where you go to meet girls, but it's also where you go to invent yourself in strangers' eyes. He's an extraordinary painter of pictures, as well as a teller of stories. Looking for the heart of Saturday night Tell me is it the crack of the pool balls Neon buzzing Loneliness is so much at the heart of so much of his music, I think. It's just a longing for something and being alone and how do you live with that and how do you deal with it. Magic or the melancholy tearing your eyes. I think Waits is a poet of doomed no-hopers. People who are almost like characters from a noir novel. They're getting their last chance at love. He was just a man out of time, clearly, and he knew it, I think, <laughs> obviously, and he, he played with it. The craft and young genius of someone who was coming up with lyrics 
that were on a par with someone like Johnny Mercer or Hoagie Carmichael or any of the songwriters that had been the backbone of the classic American songbook. That's why I'm always on run. That's why I changed my name. The Great American Songbook is something that either gets to you or it doesn't. And it got to Tom because there was a lot of intelligence in that, in the lyrics of those songs. I would go over to my friends' houses and go into the den with their dads and find out what they were listening to. I couldn't wait to be an old man. I was about 13, you know. I didn't really identify with the music of my own generation, but I seemed to like the old stuff, Cole Porter and Gershwin and Frank Sinatra. What is this thing called love? Tom had that wonderful talent to absorb all of these things that he saw. It's like storing up paints and being able to dig out the colors you want when you get ready to paint a picture. This is what he does. He paints pictures. And so true. And one of Tom Waits' most heartbreaking, beautiful picture songs is called I Hope That I Don't Fall In Love With You. This tender storyteller with a boozy baritone while wearing a $7 suit and an old man's weathered fedora hat expresses what a billion men have felt, not the least, on a lonely Saturday night. Here's... I hope that I don't fall in love with you. One, two, three, four. Well, I hope that I don't fall in love with you. I had the guts to buy one, but we've never met. 
like some company Well, I turn around to look at you And you look back at me Guy you with these up and split the chair next to you's free And the turn in the fourth phrase, I hope that you don't fall in love with me. After exposing all of his fears of commitment, the narrator realizes he is falling for this girl that he's never met, but now must face the realization she may return the favor. You can feel the pain of a man afraid of commitment in this song. He fumbles and worries, and once he finally gets the confidence to face her, well, it's too late. She's gone, and he knows he's missed his shot. And that's the world of Tom Waits. That's the world he inhabited in his music. I was always wanting to be an old man, he said, listening to Sinatra when everybody else was listening to rock and roll. The loneliness, by the way, in Sinatra's music, too. You want to hear a great hour. Listen to our hour on the life of Frank Sinatra here on Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And again, the work of Tom Waits, the life of Tom Waits, the story of a song, I hope I don't fall in love with you. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and today we have Randall Haley's story of her father. Every year she goes home to a small town in Mississippi called Clarksdale for the Juke Joint Blues Festival. And by the way, if you've never been to Clarksdale, get there because the greatest guitarists in the world have spent time there. And that's everybody from Jimmy Page to Eric Clapton and Led Zeppelin spent time in there listening to all the great blues material that's in their blues museum. And this is the birthplace of the blues, this part of the country. Well, she wrote an article, Randall Haley, entitled Reflections, Jukin in the Delta with My Old Man for a publication called hottytotty.com. 
one of the local news sources in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. Today, she shares that story with us. Call me when you can, he said. That's not out of the ordinary text message from Daddy. Between the hours of 7 a.m. and 6 p.m., Daddy and I are both busy working. We only call if it's urgent, otherwise, when you can, suffices. This morning was no different. I assumed it was going to be one of his usual, how do I do this on Facebook, or can you help me do that on the computer? Don't get me wrong, it was. But he asked me something this time that left me reminiscing. Born and raised in Clarksville, Mississippi, you don't miss the Juke Joint Festival. It's the event of the year. Being the home of the blues, Clarksville had to find another way to celebrate the music, and so there was Juke Joint. If, like me, you've moved away from the town, you go home for Juke Joint. It's just as important as Thanksgiving or Christmas. So he asked if I was planning to come home for this year's festival. Well, of course, I told him. And he asked, would you have time to walk around town with your old man? I can't remember Juke Joint Saturday that I didn't walk around town with my old man. I carry my camera to capture sights that aren't typically seen in the small Delta town, such as tourists from the Netherlands or Australia. And he holds me up at every corner to speak to every familiar face he sees, like Mr. Pettit, who he probably spoke to last week. As frustrating as it can be for my impatience, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Being able to carry a conversation with anyone he comes across, whether a new face or familiar, may be the only trait that I didn't get from the old man, but sometimes I wish I did. I got sarcasm. My mother may even tell you I got a double dose. I got the wit, the work ethic, the sense of responsibility. Even if he had to drill it into me, I got it. Several of the characteristics that make my old man who he is were passed down to me, including the not-so-great, like pale skin and skinny legs. Well, thanks a lot, Dad. Growing up, he was hard on me. I remember tears upon tears, from softball games to the boy I thought I was in love with. When the old man was disappointed in me, the whole town knew. But of all the heartaches I've given him, and there were many, Every heartfelt punishment ended with the same few words. Nobody loves you like your daddy does. He's right. Of course, he'll tell you he's never been wrong, but I can tell you with the certainty, nobody on this earth loves me as much as that old man. Even when I fought tooth and toenail with him at 17 years old and said some of the most hurtful things a daughter could ever say to her father, he hugged me with tear-filled eyes and he told me again, If I had to hurt and suffer to know that he loved me more than that boy that I was ready to run away with, then so be it. Daddy wasn't one to give in. I had to learn the hard way many times. I could be angry with him. I could hate him for the rest of my life. But I wasn't to leave that house, and you best believe I didn't. Today he asked me things like, How old are you? Followed by, Okay, you don't need your daddy's opinion on every decision you make in your life. I could go on and on about him and all that he's done for me, perhaps even write a whole book. But for the sake of this story, I'll revert back to the Juke Joint Festival. Block after block, we stroll through town listening to blues that rings out from every corner. 
stepping into stores to see what's new and who we'll spend our dollar with this time. I snap photo after photo of locals and tourists alike. Whether I take 10 photos or 400, Daddy critiques each one. We may even share a few guilt-filled laughs as we walk through town. They usually start something like, Hey, look at that guy, or did you see what she had on? But the day that I snapped this photo was different. I thought I was capturing a special, unusual moment. Here my old man is with a toy at the dining table. The same get-your-elbows-off-the-table, chew-with-your-mouth-closed father that made us sit together as a family for dinner every night. But that wasn't what I captured. Moments after this photo was taken, that same playful, friendly man began praying aloud, pushing chairs and tables aside to clear way for paramedics to tend to the poor fellow who had a heart attack right beside us. I didn't know who he was at the time, but Daddy did. Mr. Whitman Bell passed away later that afternoon in the Clarksdale Hospital. And I'd like to think Daddy was talking to Mr. Bell during his last moments on earth in this photo. At least Mr. Bell was sitting around the table feasting and fellowshipping with friends during Clarksdale's most joyous time of the year when God decided to take him. It was hard to juke the rest of that year's festival, but I'm glad that I was there. Whether it was to see my old man's faith or that the love that I've known for so many years wasn't just for me. I was blessed to be with him that day, and I'm forever blessed to call him mine. So when tomorrow rolls around, whether we're dancing our skinny legs off to some rhythmic blues or we're testing our faith in the midst of a packed restaurant, sure, Dad, I'd be delighted to take a walk around town with my old man. And what a beautiful story. What a voice. Randall Haley's, what's his face it? It was a love note to her dad. And any dad listening, you can only hope that you get a piece of writing like that for you in your lifetime. And I just hope I get something like that for my little girl. I'm tearing up a little bit. Hope you are too. That's what we like to do here on this show. And thanks for the work on this, Faith, and the whole team. These are the kind of stories we bring you every day here on Our American Stories. Randall Haley's story, A Little Piece of Earth in the Mississippi Delta. Her dad's story, too, here on Our American Story. Baby, bring my rocking shoes, cause tonight I'm gonna rock away all my blues. Have you heard the news? There's good rockin' tonight. Rock! This is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from, well, Jesse's mind. He pulled this out, and it's an American dreamer's story, folks. We love telling the stories of folks who start businesses. Hey, musicians are an American dream story. We've done Mario Andretti's, a race car driver, and his dream, and how he made it happen. His family, displaced in Italy after World War II, comes here with nothing and creates Andretti Racing. And you can hear all of our material on ouramericannetwork.org. Go there, 
Sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of ours each week. We'll send them right into your box. You can read them or you can listen to them. We transcribe all of these stories for your pleasure as well. Some people just like to read it. Others like to listen. And this story again is Jesse's, and it's about Brian Scudamore, an American-born entrepreneur and the CEO of Got Junk, a company with $200 million in yearly revenue that repurposes and recycles what many of us throw away in the trash. He gave a speech recently where he talked about the things he learned while building what has become the world's largest junk removal service. Brian's story starts off like a lot of entrepreneurial stories in that he was more interested in starting a business than going to school. 1989, right out of high school, one course short of graduation, I went and started the Rubbish Boys, saw a beat-up old pickup truck and a McDonald's drive through and I went, hey, there's a great idea. My inspiration for starting that business was it was simple. I didn't finish high school. I wasn't that smart. I could load junk into a truck. I had $1,000 in the bank. I could go buy a truck. I spray-painted the phone number 738 junk on the side, knocked on doors, alleys, laneways. Someone had a pile of junk. I introduced myself and offered to cart it away for a fee. That basic business model was to help pay my way through college. Because I didn't finish high school, I remember my father said, I'm not going to help you with your college education. I don't think it would be a good return on investment. You know, you can't finish grade 12. Why should we give you some money? And I thought, you know, that's fair. And that taught me something. I had to do it on my own. So by starting the Rubbish Boys, started making money, started to fund my way through college, felt I was learning an awful lot about business, running a business, and it was just that on the streets learning, and I made the bold decision to drop out. We learned that Brian's business began to grow, but it wasn't enough to keep Brian interested in what he was doing. So 1991, I had a couple of years under my belt. The business was working. I was making money, um, and I decided that I felt bored. I felt like, you know, this is a junk business, nothing glamorous about it, and I tried to sell my business. Had a deal in writing with someone for five grand, um, not a lot of money, but it felt like uh, enough at the time, and the deal fell through at the 11th hour, and I just felt crushed. But the lesson I learned slightly after that was that the lows precede the highs. The tide goes in, the tide comes out, the sun rises, the sun sets. There's going to be bad times, there's going to be tough times, but it's what you learn from those to help turn them into the good times. The following year, when I stuck with my business because I couldn't sell it, felt like I was sort of forced to stick with it, that was still good money, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, why don't you go to the press and tell them your story? And I said, what story? And she said, well, you created your own job, it's kind of cool, people like entrepreneurs. So I went out and told my story to the press and we got on the front page of the province newspaper, our, our head newspaper in the city, on the next day with our big truck, our phone number, 100 calls within, a, within 24 hours, and that was a bit of a high. I was like, okay, free press, didn't cost a thing. Uh, let's do more of this. But with the highs came the lows, and Brian's next difficult step, he'd have to fire everyone at the company. In 1994, I think that was the first real lesson that I experienced as a manager or as a leader. And I think leadership is a, a real important word. It's everything in a business. I had the wrong people. I was leading the wrong people in my business. I had a half a million dollars in revenue, which was exciting and I felt good about it, but I stopped having fun. I wasn't working with people that I enjoyed working with any longer. I don't think they respected me. I didn't really respect them. Brought them all in, a, in an office one day and sat all 11 down because I wanted just to get it over with and rip off the Band-Aid. And I fired everybody at once. 
But I took full, <laughs> it wasn't funny, you laugh, it, it was awful. Most of them were bigger than me. And I said, listen, you know, you're a linebacker, you're big, but I'm still firing you, and you know what the deal is here, is I, as your leader, have let you down. I either didn't hire the right people, or I didn't train you, didn't spend enough time with you, I didn't give you the support and direction you need to be successful, so let me be clear, this is my fault. And I believed it. And that day I came up with a mantra that it's all about people, finding the right people and treating them right. In fact, at our head office, the Junction in Vancouver, it says it's all about people with my name below it as our commitment to always find the right people and always treat them right. So one piece of uh, wisdom, I guess, from my own learnings was never, ever, ever compromise on the people you bring into your organization. I've made mistakes. I said it was okay, and I said don't repeat them. I've certainly repeated them, and every time I do, it's the worst mistake to make because it ends up costing you time and money. And by the way, we hear this mantra over and over again from Bernie Marcus, who is the co-founder of Home Depot, straight to Mario Andretti and his racing crew, and he had the best. Because my goodness, a racer without a great car and without a great pit crew is nothing. While his company was experiencing initial success and after realizing that he'd hired the wrong people, Brian created a vision for his company that would have more impact than he could have ever imagined. Now, 1998, I came up with a concept that I didn't realize at the time. I was on, on another low. I went to my parents' uh, summer cottage, sat out on the dock, September 17, 1998. Sunny day, but it wasn't sunny in my brain. I felt depressed, I felt down. All my other entrepreneur buddies were building bigger businesses. And I just said, you know, junk removal again. I don't have the brains, I don't have the money. I don't know if this is what I want to build. And then I said, hold on here a second. I pulled out a piece of paper and I sat out on that dock and I wrote on both sides, what could the future of 1-800-GOT-JUNK look like if only I believed in possibility? Not all the things that were in the way, mostly me, but what was the possibility? And I wrote, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003. We'll be on the Oprah Winfrey show. This is what our people will look like, feel like, and act like. This is the culture. And I listed it all out. And it really was sort of a Jerry Maguire moment. And I wrote almost my manifesto. And I started sharing it with people. And I started buying into my own uh, vision or painted picture. And I went, wow. I was ready to give up on my business, maybe sell again or quit but I chose to believe in my vision and rally others around me. People that believed stayed on board and became a part of it. People that didn't believe left and said, this isn't for me. It was the ultimate leadership tool. I had a clear vision, a clear painted picture, knew where I was going. I guess my lessons learned, my own experience, if you have a clear vision and know where you're going, if you believe in it and never question that vision so that others that come into your business it uh, doesn't matter how small or large your business is, if you don't have a clear vision, I don't think you'll get to where you want to go. You don't have a clear picture. So you need people to follow. And then finding the right people. People have often said to me, well, how do you find the right people? And there's books on it, and you can get checklists and all this sort of stuff. I keep it relatively simple. And I sit there and I go, okay, first and foremost, I'm hiring for culture. Is this someone I'd want to have over to my house for a barbecue? Is this someone that I'd want to go have a pint with after a, a busy, crazy day or some cool celebration? Let's start there, because you spend an awful lot of time at work. I want to enjoy my time with that person and know that they're a cultural fit. If they're a cultural fit, then you dive into the next level and look at their skills. But I think if someone believes in your vision and they've got cultural alignment, they'll figure everything else out. It's not that hard. 
In closing, Brian shares a quote that was used in an advertising campaign by Apple. So the quote goes something like this. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They move, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see them as genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can actually change the world are the ones who do. And that was a great find, Jesse. Brian Scudamore's story, Got Junk. And we've done so many of these American Dreamers stories, some of our recent favorites. Jake Burton and what he did to revolutionize a sport called snowboarding. And the Cedars brothers, Brian and Roy, and they gave us Yeti, the Yeti Coolers. Our American Dreamers series here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys, barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauch, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and the Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. 
1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Rubin's DJ stint would be short-lived and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip-hop, they were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Anyone who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth, if he give me a chance... I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenage boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that that kind of in in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like, Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video was at. 
The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to BCTV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beasties survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them, wanting to have a good time, and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked, and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, bop, boom, bop, bop, and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, bop, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and the delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC. And I remember these guys coming out and doing holding Not Hit It, and the crowd went crazy. I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage, because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. like. They would open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the Beasties came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. People stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say, ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies. Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was to baseball, the Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip-hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip-hop or doing it too much. So. Like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what, you guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work 
of the Beastie Boys. And we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from the Village Voice. Three jerks make a masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? Kill. 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 That's ill, Joan. <laughs> like, well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. <laughs> It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer, Say Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. License to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, 
From the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more Cowbell. With their Commodores-powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. All this really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody would heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were going to grow with them. And what happened is that the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. Ten years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. Fast-forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear, basically, 
becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe. And uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group, the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song, Mullet Head, on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994, that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single, Sabotage, was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-O, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To the Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix-Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix-Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony having been admitted to the hospital the same day. The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British. But the impact the Beatles had on American music, well... They're still having it. This is Lee Habib. The Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.